Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I'm very excited today because I have a return guest. You guys know what that means. If I have a return guest, because they're good. I don't I don't have a return guest on. I'm like, well, that was a dud. Better try that. <laughs> Better try that again. And uh and and Jessica and I have have been on this whole journey through COVID. We've talked about this before because she was one of the first guests of what's cool about about um my uh, life for the this podcast in my perspective um is that most of how it comes together is a somewhat random sampling of things so because i was uh i was touring around every city i'd go to i would look up a university i would look through guests i would quick like okay that sounds interesting enough maybe watch a video okay they know how to talk all right i'll <laughs> i'll get them on and uh kind of flying by the seat of my pants and one of the advantages of that is i don't really necessarily seek out a, a perspective and i think that's valuable with things like um say covid where uh, where we might want to we might want to hear what we want to hear sometimes. And I think this happens a lot with some of the conspiracy stuff going on out there where you can certainly find whatever validation for any perspective that you want. But if you randomly pointed at a map anywhere in the world and looked up the university there and randomly put together all of the epidemiologists and virologists and randomly pointed to a name and asked them if they were vaccinated. My guess is, Jessica, what would you say? 99 out of 100 minimum? Oh, yeah. In the United States? In yes. the United States. Minimum. Yeah. Whereas if you want to find someone that hasn't been vaccinated, I suppose you could find that. Like, And also they juggle on a tightrope. Like you can find anything. It's, it's the internet. And, um, and so I just kind of randomly found Jessica. We, we had this wonderful, um, chat. I think she was recommended by a past guest that I randomly found. And we had this wonderful chat at the beginning of COVID and she was, she, she was, she gave the longest timeline for how long COVID and stuff would be an issue. And so she was the most correct, by the way, <laughs> that one, that one we ended up um, by the time it was going to air, there was so much changing stuff that we just re-recorded. So the, I think the first time she was actually on the show that you can hear is in June. Um, but uh, we've had a, a couple conversations since that time. And so now I'm having her back for a lot of reasons. Um, and uh, one is since we last talked, uh, the world has like really opened up quite a bit. And, uh, and there's mixed feelings about that one way or another. And, uh, but it, it seems like as far as the public's concerned, it's like, great, everything's, 
normal and here we go. And so I wanted to have Jessica back on uh, to talk about that because uh, and we have some other things we're going to talk about uh, as well. One one of which is how much do scientists benefit from something <laughs> like COVID? If Oof. scientists are just loving that COVID's happening, which is like uh, some of the more conspiratorial approach of, of thinking. If you randomly picked those hundred places around the country, if you did that a hundred times uh, and, and they're all that one, what do you think they're getting a cut? Like every single person is just getting a cut of that sweet, sweet vaccine money. And two, uh, which is not much money. And two, um, why would they take it themselves uh, if if uh, if it was some manipulation? So these are the thoughts that I've been having a lot lately. And I've been dealing with with uh, what I get yelled at at me on social media and stuff because people don't like uh uh hearing uh reality sometimes <laughs> and so uh so anyway welcome to the show the longest intro i've ever done on this <laughs> podcast sorry i'm such a blabbermouth today jessica brinkworth joining me jessica could you introduce yourself for the uh the people that um haven't had hurdy on the show or just yeah, sure. Um, so I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and uh, I study the evolution of immune system function with a focus on severe infections, largely sepsis. So that that includes things like COVID, but um, by and large, I study a lot of bacterial pathogens. So, can I plague. ask? <laughs> plague yeah plague is i i do study plague um that's generally before covid you go to um you you go out to uh meet up with some new people or something like that there's a get together and people ask you what you do and you say i study plague what kind of reaction uh definitely not comfortable. <laughs> the reaction is usually like, um, which was very different. I used to study, I started off in HIV and HIV was great for a bunch of reasons, like, because it's such a, there's, um, we know so much about it. We know so much about like immune function around it. Uh, there's lots of people to collaborate with. There's lots of people to talk to, but it was also great because if someone asked me what I was doing, I would just say HIV. And that was like, we didn't need to discuss the rest of it. I didn't have to get into nitty gritty and I didn't risk boring someone. But when I, I say things like plague, I generally get a like, is it on right. right now? Kind of, kind of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is funny. Our, well, speaking of the evolution of, of uh, the immune system, I mean, much of our, I mean, we have these internal processes that happen, but we've also evolved these kind of psychological disgust mechanisms that are yeah. sorting out these kind of broad heuristics of like, okay, our ancestors that went away from someone that was coughing probably did a little bit better than the ones that were drawn to people coughing. And so we have these, these kind of... Um, maybe overly simplified and not not always the most accurate heuristics of of how to 
avoid diseases. And and there's also, I think this causes a lot of um, cognitive dissonance when you have something new that you kind of don't have a natural aversion for in in a way. Or maybe you don't necessarily understand it. Like I think like when someone has symptoms, for example, that kind of that disgust, right, that kind of behavioral immunity is uh, is like it's so hardwired that if someone has like open disease or cold like symptoms, most people get a sense of like being uncomfortable at minimum disgust possibly like, as well. Um, but when you can carry something asymptomatically yeah. and the ramifications aren't obvious, like with COVID, then it, it's a, I think it's a different story. Like it's a um, virus, you know, SARS-CoV-2 is a virus uh, and there are lots of viruses that are like this because they'll have latency periods before you see symptoms. Like HIV. HIV, exactly. Where, Tuberculosis. Um, right. They benefit from being silent, right? Mm-hmm. And so they can bypass this this behavioral complex that we've evolved over, you know, years and years and years and years and years. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah that makes them quite competitive. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, it's, it's, and, and it's kind of amazing watching people try to sort it out with there is like a bit of hygiene theater. I mean, early on, early on, it wasn't a hundred percent clear exactly how much say, um, the uh, surface transmission was happening but even after that was kind of uh, knew that was a lower uh risk you still see a lot of uh, i i would see pictures of people in comedy clubs or whatever they're packed indoors pretty tightly together and then there's like little hand sanitizers <laughs> on, on, on all the tables like yeah, oh yeah that'll conflict, keep you safe right? from the respiratory virus yeah so i mean like the hierarchy for for even the common cold for that matter, but like common cold, flu, COVID is respiratory intake, right? So aerosolization or respiratory droplets. So breathing and being within, you know, indoors with somebody in close proximity. So like less than six feet, right? And then uh, and then it goes down to like, okay, well, fomite transmission, which is when you pick stuff off, off of surfaces or, um, yeah, so... And then after that, I guess it's like delayed fomite transmission is another way, like where it sits for like a long time. And so we know some interesting things about it that are actually kind of more important for lab safety than they would necessarily be like in real life. Like it can live on stainless steel for five or six days. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in a lab, that's really, really important that it's readily aerosolized. Also in a lab is very, very important. They can stay in the air for hours. Um, That's also technically and possibly this awful lot of governments that have fought over this whether it's important in real life, like, or not, but it is, it isn't just, we know that in real life, it isn't just in respiratory droplets, not big chunks of water that hit the ground right away, that it is actually in the air for some time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So you see, uh, I guess there is a certain amount of theater around it. I actually think that there's a benefit to keeping things kind of clean generally. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So I'm, and part of that is that I do work with some pretty nasty pathogens. So I'm just out of habit. i I have always wiped down stuff that comes from right. restaurants and takeout containers. Oh, for sure. I and mean, I'm not, and maybe we should yeah. have been doing this all along. It's just, some of it is just like when you, okay, now we're going to like 
take everyone's temperature before they come in. It's like, I'm not, I'm not saying that's not a good thing that you're doing that, but I think that it's outweighed by you justifying it to yourself that like, oh, it's okay. Absolutely. We took everyone's temperature. We're yeah. good to go. And we're gonna like, have this did that party. do anything really? Yeah, yeah. We're going to have this party with a bunch of people and it's going to be fine because we're going to test two days ahead of time, right? So when you have a, when you have a, a test that generally speaking, we have a couple of different types of COVID tests, right? One of them has a 30% error rate. And the other one, which is very accurate, has like you need, it can really only detect the the pathogen if you've been infected for two to four days already. So doing like this series of repeated of like a single test, like testing once weekly, and that's going to keep you safe. So I can go and do things and work outside of a bubble. That was something that bothered me the entire time. That's not mm. really true. Um but yeah, there's lots of justifications for it. And right now, one of the things that is is problematic is, um, so I think that there's, I guess it depends. Things are sort of unknown how we're, how we're going to proceed. But our state is in phase five reopening. So to a certain extent, things are, we've been told that things can go back wholly to normal. There's a drive to get kids back into schools. There's a drive to like have businesses completely open up. Um, and so, you know, with that, there's been the CDC has released a, a bunch of um, statements that broadly disagree with the WHO and a number of other uh, other jurisdictions around like mask wearing and whether or not you really need to wear one if you're fully vaccinated, if you need to wear them indoors if you're fully vaccinated or outside. Um, and so there's, I guess there's a whole bunch of and things around travel. There's a bunch of stuff about this that's just kind of in denial about what our biological reality is. Mm -hmm. And the first is that, so 50% of the U.S., adults in the U.S., um, have been vaccinated. And now the numbers are sort of teetering, and like pittering off a little bit. I'll be really stunned if we make it to 70. The federal government seems to believe that we'll make it to 70. So yeah, great. No Wouldn't way. that be great if that happens? I'm excited about the possibility of that. There's about 50 million children that still don't qualify to be um, vaccinated. So, and COVID's travel really, really well among children. So that's, that's the first thing. Just because adults are vaccinated doesn't mean that there aren't lots of people who can act as vectors for, for, um, for this virus in the first place. The second right. is that the vaccines have rolled out kind of unequally. So some people are better protected than others. Internationally, that's absolutely the case where the U.S. has hoarded the vaccine market. So there's everyone else is behind and lower income nations are, are in really big trouble. Um, so it doesn't really justify if you're fully vaccinated, you jumping onto a plane and going to some other location just because you think that you won't get severely ill. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of this connects to a misunderstanding generally about what these emergency use authorizations for the vaccines that are on the American market mean. And um, so at the moment, these emergency use authorizations, while they demonstrate that the vaccines are, are very like have um, are very effective and uh, it seems that efficacy overall is really good. Um, they're in they're not indicated truly because indication is a word that you use when something's actually formally approved. Emergency use authorizations are not formal approvals. 
their emergency approvals. So, uh, so I guess pseudo indicated they are uh, pseudo indicated for um, manifestation of either moderate symptoms or uh, severe ones. And so, you can still be vaccinated. You know, at the data that's available at the time that these approvals went through, is that you can still be vaccinated and have mild symptoms. You can mm -hmm. still carry it, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so I guess that there's all of that, and that still the way that people understand these vaccines to work, um, I think is permitting is, is, a uh, allowing the rationalizations for certain behaviors that are not necessarily safe. Yeah. Have, uh, have, uh, oh man, I have so many questions now. Um, so, so the vaccines, I, I, I don't know how rigorously this particular aspect of it is, but the vaccines do seem to keep uh, 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 do seem to lower the risk of getting covid in the first place correct mm -hmm. and then if you get covid it does seem to lower the risk of spreading it L mm -hmm. lower not not completely that's the that's the strangest thing that i see over and over again is the this like pretty basic misunderstanding where people are like well, if you have the vaccine, what do you care if I have the vaccine? Right. It's like, well, no, it doesn't mean that I'm 100% invincible now. It's, it's lowered. Yeah, it's also fundamentally uncooperative, right? Like, so yeah. if we want to proceed through this, all healthy people that can access this vaccine need to yeah. have this vaccine and yeah. there needs to be you know and there and the the biden administration is working really hard on this but they're trying to reach into communities to you know to help increase access there's there's other things that are worth thinking about like we don't know how long the protection lasts mm -hmm. not everybody's coming out with the same antibody titer so some people are going to mount great memory responses and some people are going to mount crap ones the vast majority of the people who die of this infection are over the age of 65, where we already know that there's um, issues generally around whether or not vaccines can like can mount, whether or not people will mount a suitable memory response to a vaccination in the first place. And there's a lot of work right. that's gone into like the herpes zoster, like the what is herpes zoster in real life? Shingles, uh, the shingles vaccine to ensure that people do mount a response. Um, and, and pneumococcal vaccines for pneumonia and things like that, the same sorts of efforts have gone into it. It's it's really sticky. With this, we're, cut, we're still in unknown territory. And I guess at the end of it, um, you know, we have these pools all over the world where people are not vaccinated and you have viruses that are emerging that are really competitive. Mm -hmm. Delta variant from India right now is in 49 states in the US yeah. and DC. It's in Wisconsin. No, we're, well, 49 states, of course. It's, a, it's <laughs> it be odd if it wasn't here. Um, so. Yeah, I I mean, so th this was me probably taking a leap to positively reframe because I'm, in, I'm exceptionally frustrated with people that aren't getting the vaccine, quite frankly, because it's such a privileged to, to have. I mean, it's just... To have such a uh, uh, effective solution, and to have people that just uh, being uh, like 
stubborn and kicking and screaming about it like kids are doing it as like like there's a lot of libertarian ish ideals of of like and i have libertarian ideals as well but it's just like hey here's something that is that benefits you like oh okay sounds great what's the catch well it also benefits others well then i will not <laughs> do that as a matter of my political identity and and so so you know i've been frustrated frankly and uh i'm i'm sure you have as well and and so but one of the ways that i positively reframed in terms of the hoarding I mean, aren't aren't we starting to send some vaccines other places, and and won't and won't the won't the our slow of the of, of people taking the vaccine maybe give us a surplus of vaccines that we can continue to get around the world, which would well, maybe lower variants around the world, or so is there's that- there's a couple of things. So um, so first, I just wanted to say that about the earlier comment that I made. There's a difference between anti-vaxxing and hesitancy, right? Right. So right, right. there are lots of people that are have real life experiences around being ignored because of their identity, right? Yeah. Who have have failed, r- repeatedly failed experiences with the medical uh, establishment right. because of their identity, and that's like that's different. I mean, we know that like African Americans in the United States are way less likely to get pain treatment on time. They're way less likely to yeah. triage and severe infection. You know, like there's. There's real reasons to distrust this, but then there's just anti-vaxxing well, generally. Which, then there's which people is a that whole... think the Bill Gates like microchip uh, stuff is. Did we have a like... conversation about that where I was like, I, I thought it was really fascinating that people are having that conversation on their phones. Uh, yeah, <laughs> they're uh, on that they're on parlay or parlor or parlay or whatever, and they're yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. amazing. Um, yeah, no, I agree, and I, I it is. It is super, super frustrating. But in terms of what's happening, I think so. The G7 meeting just happened and the wealthiest seven nations in the world got together and said, "Okay, we're going to issue a billion vaccinations worldwide. So our world population, we're looking at a a little over seven. Right now we're looking at a little over two, a little over one billion people have been vaccinated in the first place. We've got what, like. 8 billion people on the planet? I think so. It's about 8 billion, right? I think so. So that many and the seven wealthiest nations are like, we'll send a billion out. So that I found really, 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 really frustrating. Yeah. Because you're talking about like seven nations that have hoarded world wealth that are saying, okay, a billion vaccines out for something that we think maybe the vaccination will be effective for maybe two or three years before we have to have a revaccination campaign. And they're only getting together and sending out a billion when they have an awful lot of power about price point and distribute like, yeah. So, I mean, yes. So you need more around like 21 billion vaccines for to kind of cover. You need a lot. All all the need. Yeah. You need, you need a lot. And so, um, and so that I've I found pretty pretty tough. South Africa is going through. So South Africa has uh, better surveillance than a lot of other middle and low income countries, and they're going through like multiple very very serious waves. And a lot of this has to do with just stalled vaccine purchasing and and distribution. So, um, you know, then you have to think about countries where we don't have as much insight that are really, really poor. So I think that like, it, it would be great. One billion is fantastic. 
it would be really awesome if they could get out the door and do a few, you know, another seven billion, maybe. <laughs> would be, yeah. like, that'd be awesome. Well, I think you would need a lot more than there are in an ideal world. If you were to get 100 percent of people vaccinated, I mean, is it when they say one billion, do they mean full fully vaccinated so like two billion yeah so i think that they're thinking like johnson and johnson like oh, one shot and you're I done see. i see um and there's other like there's there's a lot of other stuff that's on the on the market so china has vaccinated a billion people or at least they've issued i shouldn't say a billion people they have successfully gotten a billion vaccines into arms and that's mm -hmm. across southeast asia um the vaccine that they've used i believe for most of that is uh Sinovac. And the Delta variant just blows right through it. Mm. So they did a great job. And um, a problem in, in another area of the world has led to it not being effective against that particular variant. So mm -hmm. that, and that, that's the reality. So you do need a lot more and you need a lot of different kinds. Like it can't just be like one kind. It's got to be a bunch of different kinds. So, yeah. And it, it, it's my very, 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 very limited understanding that Delta variant is seemingly a bit more transmissible, transmissible, but maybe not. Uh, they don't know if it's more uh, virulent more severe. or not. Yeah, it's just really good at getting into cells, it looks like at the moment. Um, hmm. And that, so who knows what that means in terms of severity. But severity is a weird thing with infectious disease because it's not just the it's not just the virus that determines that. Could you didn't you said this off the recording to me? Um, I think last time or the time before, and it blew my mind. And I just don't want to be butchering it. So, um, could could you set up a little bit because this is related? Could you set up a little bit of sepsis? The thing the thing that I'm getting at is you told me a statistic about what happens to people that survive sepsis oh, yeah. in their and uh, could you get into that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So the um, can you so describe the, what sepsis is? Yeah, so sepsis is uh, yeah. So I I try to word this very carefully. Um, okay, so sepsis is the outcome of severe infection. It's sparked by a, an infection that's severe enough that it triggers a profound immune response. And that immune response probably matches the severity of the infection, but the profound immune response commits an awful lot of bystander tissue damage in the process. And so as a result, you end up with a whole host of immediately urgent medical problems like widespread clotting. Um, yeah, clotting happens when you get infected anyway, but if you have a really bad infection, as is the case with sepsis, you get a lot of clotting, which leads to like, you know, clogging of vessels on the way to like major organs. Um, it leads to like all kinds of chemical signals that tell the loose junk or the tight junctions of cells that hold together like your your um, arteries to loosen up. And so then you end up with like plasma leaking into locations that it shouldn't be. So it often ends up up into lungs. Uh, and when it does that, it brings in all kinds of uh, like cellular junk with it. And the lungs, which are like a really big immune tissue too, respond by like, by, um, by like making fibers and fi you end up with sort of like low end fibrosis. And then they have problems like the, the air sacs in the lungs will have problems opening and closing. You can end up, and so you can't breathe. 
Um, then there's like issues that spread out even further than that. It, it's really difficult to handle um, because things that happen in this condition, um, really, we don't really have any control mechanisms for them. So like one of the things that happens in the normal course of your existence is that you have certain white blood cells that as they die, will traffic through the liver and the lungs. And then they, you know, they die and they get, their parts get pulled apart. They get used for something else. But in a severe infection, they're being pulled out of the bone marrow in really high numbers. And then they're trafficking through the lungs activated and they're just in there killing stuff no matter what it is. So these are the things that are, that happen with sepsis. Um, and then, so this is a pretty big immunological event. Mm-hmm. Never mind what, any infecting organism can do because they have their own skill set and are capable of doing all kinds of things within a host. Um, The immune response itself, which under the conditions of like a normal infection would be helpful, is just so big that it's deadly to the to the host. So if you survive sepsis and in early stages of sepsis, it's got maybe a 30 percent mortality rate, which is which is actually pretty high for any infection. Um, if you descend all the way into shock, then you're looking at a 70 to 80% mortality rate. Um, so it can get and is pretty serious. And it's the leading cause of infectious disease in the, well, it's the leading cause of infectious disease death in the country and COVID causes it. So with all of that said, if you survive it, uh, there's all these down the line things that happen. It's like a five to 10 year recovery. And anyone who develops sepsis has a significantly increased likelihood of dying of any cause in the next 12 months. So, and this is connected to just a ton of things that happen. Uh, some of them are immunological. Some of them are like recovering from damage that happened during the infection. And some of them we don't really have much of an explanation for. So there's all kinds of cognitive issues. People have memory and cognitive problems that stretch on five, 10 years. Um, there's muscle wasting. It used to be thought that that muscle wasting was the byproduct of often people having to be in medically induced comas. But in actual fact, it seems that it's triggered possibly by lots of other things. And so, um, and recovering from that muscle wasting is very, very difficult. So that goes on for quite some time. As a result, people have trouble with mobility. They have trouble getting around. Um, If you end up on a ventilator, just by the fact that you're on a ventilator, you take on lung damage anyway. Um, If you survive being on a ventilator, uh, then there's usually issues around lung fibrosis just from the condition that got you on there in the first place. Yeah, it's pretty big. It's very serious. That's... And it is affecting people across the country in a really uneven way. So yeah. the people who are more likely to get COVID are people who have, you know, who are lower income. Mm-hmm. And so the the down the stream effects of these severe infections are going to be part of what we have to deal with for the next 20, 30 years, maybe. Yeah. It's bad. Yeah. And all of our insurance rates go go up and everything else. And it, I, I'm, I'm just trying to frame it in like a, um, it, it seems like um, there's a lot of uh, othering that happens in the, I've, I've read a, I had a guest on recently that has for decades studied literature through pandemics through history to see what oh, people wow. were writing and stuff and her name's carrie nixon she just put out a book and 
really interested. She's just a literature professor. And, um, and it's, it's through history, a big part of the denial is that, oh, this happens to other people, you know, and, and often, and often it's people that are a little more privileged and wealthy being like, oh, that's like a poor person thing that right. happens. And, uh, and so I, I hate the fact that I have to reframe of like, Hey, you might not be poor, and so you aren't worrying about poor. But guess what? That impacts you <laughs> as well. That that impacts yeah. all of our healthcare system. That Im- poverty affects every person. That's why, even if you're rich, that's why rich people have live in gated communities because poverty is a thing. And and so, think, yeah. I was gonna say I can't remember if we talked about this. I think we did, but I don't know. Oh, if it, it was doesn't in the matter first, if we repeat first interview that got canned but the um okay so we've had what 600,000 people in the US die mm-hmm. that's a lot more than the number of people that died in say like world war 2 yeah um like for in terms of like US troops mm-hmm. and whatnot in Canada and in the UK and a number of other nations that's expended an awful lot of people in the world war 2 effort um the response to soldiers coming home who had like injuries and problems was to set up a national healthcare system, mm-hmm. like an actual national healthcare system that it was, a, you know, before then people were paying out of pocket. There was insurance and things like that. And, you know, those nations pulled together and made a national healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be an appropriate response to what we're looking at now. Yeah. Uh, I have absolutely no faith that it'll happen. No, yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. I think we we had some opportunities, but I think it's it's sort of done. Um, and so, yeah, and so everybody's premiums go up, I guess, is one thing. If you want to mm-hmm. think about it from the perspective of, like, lining. Your pocketbook, yeah. Lining your pocketbook, yeah. yeah. Which is a way to get through to people. Right. Um, there is, a, 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 in, in terms of, uh, so a couple things. Um, uh, I'm curious about emergency use and when FDA approval happens and and what that actually means and the difference between where we're at right now with this tremendous amount of data that we already have and and uh, what needs to happen for it to be full use because you hear people mostly in denial about things that are like, well, it's not FDA approved. Like, well, you just you just said that you don't trust the FDA. So why are you, uh, it's not, it's not going to, one of the things that I see an issue with is people have a problem understanding the idea of falsifiability of, of like, like take the lab leak, um, uh, situation, which people are, which is, which is in my perspective, I, I would fall under the, I bet it's not a lab. It could be, I bet it's not a lab leak. And my, my guess is, is because uh, I, it seems to me that people forwarding this are more interested in, because you'd think of it as a lab leak, people would be more nervous. They're like, oh my gosh, I better be even more careful or vaccinated for this was some horrific scientific accident or something like that. But it seems to be more about um, just, uh, forwarding, just, just trying to justify distrust within authority and systems and science just generally. And so 
one of the things like the the White House said that they're going to investigate it and all these people were like, we've been validated. See, they said we were crazy. Like, well, no one was saying you were crazy. That was I, I don't know what your journey was, but it was <laughs> like it, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a big thing. Um, yeah, to, I mean. To, 90 days is not enough time to get to the bottom of that. So yeah. that's just feeding people in various departments who are loyalists to the... Pri that was my interpretation of that. Yeah. that it's, there's a lot of pressure within the bureaucratic establishment to like... To, yeah. to like just do something. It so, seems like more like social pressure than anything. Uh, yeah, I agree. And not, to, I mean, I guess there's no and, real harm at the uh, end of the day of trying to cover all bases, except that, <laughs> except that everything right now points to it being a spillover event that occurred probably right. from an intermediate host, right? So right. it's bat to intermediate host to people in China. Right. Um, there's a couple of completely out there ideas about what this is. The Chinese government is actually promoting an idea that's probably not true, which is uh, the notion that it came in on frozen food. Mm -hmm. um, but by and large, uh, Wuhan looks, ba even based on just the phase one investigation, Wuhan looks like it was a spreading event, that it came from outside of Wuhan and came in. They have some data from a couple of other individuals across, like in the nearby region. But they need more samples. So they were only given, um, WHO was given, I read the report in March. Uh, so I have to remember this, but um, the WHO got something like 10,000 records to go through um, and samples that paired with a lot of those. And they were from Wuhan and then a bunch of other areas going back to like October or something, twenty. Right. 2019. Uh, yeah. Phase two, they're going to have much more comprehensive access. So, I mean, so, part of this so also, well, sorry. the reason why I bring up the falsifiability thing is because if if they do this investigation, it turns out, oh, it was a lab leak. And then there's evidence for that. I, OK, I, I was wrong. I didn't I don't really hold the position that tightly anyway. Cool. We figured that out. Let's uh, and now let's deal with the consequences of that. But. If if the White House comes back and says, nope, it's conclusive, the WHO says, nope, there was no lab leak. Well, those people will just be like, oh, they're just hiding yeah. that there. There's there's simply when you hold a belief that there's simply nothing someone can do to prove it, to make you change your mind. You should probably be suspicious of well, that. If you take the negative position, you'll always win, right? Because no one can actually disprove a negative. So the right. best that the White House can do is come back and say evidence is pointing to blank. Mm -hmm. That that's it. So if and if you're a firm believer that you know the negative is the truth, then there's yeah. nothing that can be done to disprove your position. It's one of the most fascinating things I find about conspiracy theories is how they mm -hmm. always seem to be positioned in such a way that you can't, you know. Yeah. You can't disprove them because doing so would require disproving a negative. Yeah, yeah. It it, 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 it seems sorry. like there's a there's like a you, you know there there was um with mask mandates and stuff there was people like they're the government's trying to enslave us and they're putting these muzzles on us and these things and and as things have kind of dissipated and as as rates have gone down 
as things have loosened, I feel people like are like, well, I can't be wrong. There has to be something going on. And they're just really, they need to be grasping at straws because if it wasn't a globalist plot to enslave us or destroy us or whatever, well, then I've just been an asshole for yeah. 14 I mean, months. I think I think part for me is I don't under I don't understand the need for that rationalization. And I I'm got yeah. lots of reasons to be angry like a lot of other people do. But I uh, right. I don't understand the need for that rationalization because the pandemic itself is brutal and awful enough. Like yeah, there's yeah. there's already pretty terrible disparities that are actually uh, right. uh, actually part of real conspiracies right like the you know segregated neighborhoods that's a real conspiracy to keep yeah it's not even a secret one it's just people conspired to like ensure that you know certain people would remain low income and crowded together in bad conditions and those are the people that are suffering the most like that's there's plenty that's real to be angry about so i think that that's something that you know yeah yeah you think it's that's just reality is never quite as interesting enough for some folks, though. But but there's a there's um, what about no what about one thing I've been thinking about in terms of side effects from vaccines? Has there ever been a vaccine in human history where there was a delayed onset of a, of a side effect that happened where? Because I because I know there's like vaccine injury that can happen in in like, you know, the whatever one in a million case or whatever in in certain uh, vaccines through that, in my understanding, usually happen right away or or soon after. But has there ever been a vaccine that a year goes by, everything's fine. and And then later. So, okay so the first thing is that most side effects from vaccines um are things like most rare side effects from vaccines are things like vagal responses, like people who get who faint for no and have no idea that it's coming, that they just have this like vagal response to being, you know, and they faint or pass out or have like problems for just from being vaccinated. And that's acute, right? That happens right away. There are, um, I think the best example I can think of would be the chickenpox vaccine. So um, there's a limited possibility with the chickenpox vaccine that you may get shingles later. Mm. So there's there's that. And that's delayed, right? Most people don't get shingles until they're at least in their 30s. Uh, but it can be much further out from that. But the cost benefits still, so the A, that appears to be rare, and B, the cost benefits are still like in the favor of the vaccine because people who get chickenpox can readily end up with pneumonia and pneumonia is pretty, can be pretty serious. Mm. Pneumonia is the leading cause of sepsis for one thing. And that pneumonia is not necessarily even caused by chickenpox. It's just caused by things that constitutively live on you in your lungs right now. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's, that's one that I can think of where there's like, that's a possible down, down the road side effect so people passing out you mean like i mean people pass out when they give blood too i mean people are scared of needles it's a little different so um and people aren't always necessarily aware that they're this tense about getting vaccinated but it's the combination of like um i guess the yeah the getting vaccinated and then on top of that like this you know there's other things like sometimes people respond oddly to saline injection. Um, 
little basic stuff that leads to people passing out. Um, and that's not to say that that's not a, a problem. People can pass out and hurt themselves in the process, but it happens during the actual vaccination. Mm. And there's other weird things that people get to that make them suspicious. So like I, for example, every time I get a shot of saline or anytime I'm on a saline drip, I taste metal in my mouth. Mm -hmm. That's always the case with me. And I think a lot of other people probably experience that too. And that can be very off-putting. Um, but it, I think generally like no one ever explained to me ever that that was something that I could expect. So for the longest time, I was just irritated by having to be put on drips or having to get a vaccine because I would have this awful taste in my mouth. Mm -hmm. um, PEG, uh, polyethylene glycol, which is the preservative in both the Pfizer and, um, not preservative, sorry. It's uh, it's an uh, integral part of um the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, that polyethylene glycol often has like, sort of like delayed, people get extra sore. Um, they feel like, sometimes they feel faint Im immediately and then they kind of have extra soreness later. Mm. But these are all still pretty acute. This is all stuff that's happening in the first 24 hours or so. Mm. So yeah, mm. so chickenpox is the one that I can think of like just off the top of my head where we, we definitely see this sort of. That's yeah. interesting. Because I, I, I don't I don't know enough of what's happened. Uh, I all right. I'm going to make myself vulnerable and probably okay. probably say something that's very very incorrect and uh, whatever. I'll I, I'm used to feeling dumb on this show, but you're 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 mounting this memory response in the immune system when you get a vaccine. Mm -hmm. Isn't the immune system always? creating antibodies for various things kind of taking a guess at what's out there and possible threats in the environment and is a vaccine just like kind of giving it a crib sheet in in a uh, way is is um, that is that the so wrong way of thinking about it a little a little bit a little off so okay. you're making b cells and t cells all the time and those b cells and t cells have very specific receptors that see very tiny molecular patterns and they're fairly specific and they go through a very rigorous selection program between your bone marrow and your thymus or in the case mm -hmm. of t cells your bone marrow and your spleen and other tissues uh to ensure that they don't attack you a certain number of them always will so uh and if they get woken up they'll you know, if they're activated, uh, then you can end up um, developing autoimmune conditions. So there's there's that. But uh, the reason why you're continually developing antibodies is because you're continually being breached. Like mm -hmm. every nanosecond of the day, there's something that's breaking through some barrier on your body, usually the mucosa. And that's the reason why you're continually making antibodies. Now, those, those antibodies um, go through very... A, a series of, of stages and the B cells themselves go through a series of stages where um, they undergo like um, physical changes depending on what the stimulus was and how I'm trying to think of the simplest way to put this. So depending on what the stimulus was, they undergo these like physical changes. Mm -hmm. And then the memory B cells, um, there's subsets of them too. So it can get quite complicated, but uh, memory B cells will, have a receptor that looks like the thing that you identified earlier as being terribly bad. And then they'll excrete an antibody that also has receptors in a, a conserved region that um, determines what it will do. A lot, some of this is guided by what tissue it happens into. So it's, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon, but they're not 
always sort of writing a, it is kind of like giving them a crib sheet, but they're not necessarily ex- expressing a whole lot of antibodies that are not targeted. Mm. So um, does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. So just to be clear, a lot of your antibody production has to do with just the fact that you're constantly being infected. And you do undergo this like change. So um, anti- the antibodies undergo a sort of weird maturation too, where they get converted from one type to another. And um, most people are familiar with that because like if they have Epstein-Barr virus like mono, they'll get a test done where they look at how many antibodies are of a particular type like IgM versus IgG. Mm. But both of those types of antibodies are specific to Epstein-Barr. So that, that might have been too cop. I don't know if no, I gave no, a very no. clear explanation. Yeah, well, because Epstein-Barr is something that I see um, come up. And uh, when when people are like, uh, uh, um, uh, trying to cite reasons for not getting vaccinated, that's that's one that that people have dug up to point to that people oh. have got Epstein Barr from some vaccine in the past or something like that. It, it's it's I think there was, I think there was some flu vaccine in like the eighties or something like that. This is this is the information that that uh, that uh, people that are vaccine hesitant are finding that I see sent to me. I, I mean, I don't read it that carefully, usually. It, it is weird that you're expected to just be a professional debunker, too. People are just like, whack-a-mole. <laughs> what about this? What about this? And then if yeah. you don't watch every single thing of, like, whatever... Like, if you don't watch every Joe Rogan podcast, you're being closed-minded. Like, well, I can find you. Oh, you had a evolutionary biologist that said ivermectin should uh, be some miracle cure. Well, how about I find a thousand evolutionary biologists <laughs> that will tell you to take the damn vaccine, and yeah. you listen. You listen to all their. Uh, lectures and you're close-minded if you don't hear and and it, and there's so few things too. I get myself worked up about this. <laughs> there's there's so few things that you see the same. It's the same thing that circulates. Uh, so you get the same links sent to you all the time. These are free thinkers that are figuring out for themselves that are always finding the exact same link there's always like a fad that's going on of like the guy that made the pcr test said he didn't like fauci that one goes around for a while and you'll just get this this quote from like the 1990s of of like a disgruntled (laughs) person yeah i mean so um I was thinking about this the other night. So first off, debunking has taken up an extraordinary amount of my time. Yeah. I said the first, so like, and I can get into how destructive debunking has been. uh, Yeah. For me, just in terms of time consumption. But um, I was reading this book to my kid last night and it opened with a quote. It's a book about like some fish that goes on an adventure, but it opened with a quote from Galileo, which is, you cannot show the people, I'm going to mangle this. You cannot show the people, you cannot help, wait, how is it? You cannot show the people, 
Nope, here it is. You cannot teach the people. You can only help them discover what it is that they don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of a bit of an attitude that I've taken recently. Like I'm very interested in teaching and doing outreach and stuff, but when I'm approached combatively mm. um, around this kind of stuff, the best I can do is say, here are the things that we don't know. Like, mm. Here's what we know. Here's what we don't know. And I can just show you that none of us know this. And so, you know. Um, right. Yeah. I, uh, in terms of how much time it's taken. So I, you know, when all this happened, I'd been preparing lectures, extra lectures for my classes around, you know, the students wanted to know, and we weren't hearing anything from anybody. Like the university administration here had been largely silent. Like they'd been figuring things out, but we were just sort of given like a one month update. So in February, February 2nd, we got an email saying, we're looking into this. And then March 2nd, the faculty got an email saying, March break is coming. You got to get ready to take everything home. Mm. And But no one else got that email. So um, so the students didn't get anything until like the first day of, like the day before March break or something. In, in the interim, we were all getting ready to like go online. So there was this big one month period of silence. And then the federal government was doing what they did. And um, generally speaking, everyone was not as well prepared as you would think a nation that had spent so much money on infectious disease preparedness would have been. <laughs> but uh, certainly post 9-11, there was an awful lot of infectious disease preparedness money and consultation stuff that happened. And uh, but, you know, the stuff like this, it takes people by surprise. So I was told to take all of my classes and put them online and get them all up and online in 10 days. So um, that's hard to do. Mm-hmm. But then on top of that, I pulled my kids out of school. So then mm-hmm. we're all at home. And then on top of that, because we were fielding these ridiculous number of questions that were coming, we get dozens and dozens of questions into the lab every day about you know stuff that wasn't even anywhere on my radar. Uh, I, um, the pool cleaner was our, the aquarium cleaner stuff. Um, uh hydroxychloroquine uh, yeah, right? yeah that that was something that was absolutely not on my radar and we had like dug right down into pathways and sent personal responses back and we put maybe five of these responses like my lab got together um and we did this all online but uh my lab got together and started answering and fielding some of these questions and then we would like put some of them up on my website there's maybe five that we answered there but most of them were issued privately and this was taking up just tons of time but the idea was that the people need these responses. If they get a good answer or the best answer we can give, then they can plan accordingly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that took up a lot. And then uh, the, the lab pivoted in May towards handling, uh, digging into the reasons why there were these outbreaks in local agricultural plants, mainly meatpacking plants. Then the lab got pulled into testing expanded to like 30 people. I have a small lab, expanded to 30 people. And we went out and registered, you know, found money, scraped money together for testing in these areas where there was these outbreaks that weren't being served. And there was lots of like ag workers and undocumented people in the area. And so we were like, let's just get testing done where we can. Um, And then 
we finally got into a position around March where most people that were in the lab or all people in the lab were vaccinated. And we started talking about reopening. And that's just been a massive Herculean effort because in the intervening time, all, all the staff has left. Mm-hmm. People have moved, moved and quit and gone on to other jobs. And so, like, there's this whole thing around COVID that's just super, super time consuming. Um, I'm back to like, I have one person that was in the lab before that's still here. Um, everyone else is new. No one's trained. Like it's, it's a mess. It's, it's really, really tough. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on top of that, there's always like the, the, um, this sort of unnamed service, which are all the people that come and write you emails and ask for explanations of things, which I'm perfectly willing to do, but it's, uh, it takes up an awful, awful lot of time. Yeah. 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 I know. I get, Sorry, I, I, no, I get consumed by it as well. No, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happy that you shared that because it's nice for the listeners that probably see me on Twitter or whatever, <laughs> like, wow, Shane gets worked up sometimes. It's but it's, hard, right? They don't it's a see lot. the DMs that I get from people and messages and stuff that I get from people. And I also have, I'm in, it's funny too, because they. Uh, a, a big thing is people like to be like, well, I don't trust scientists because look at, what this scientist said usually it's like an engineer talking about COVID or something like that or it's like people don't get that like the pilot doesn't service the engine doesn't it doesn't design the plane like those are different jobs different specialties yeah, yeah. and who who was that silicon valley guy that put together the thing in an excel sheet and he was uh he he made these predictions about how bad this was never going to be based on yeah. Based on he did this epidemiological modeling like in a spreadsheet, but it was really just like multiplication. Yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah that was. And then he like pushed yeah. this random. People believed him. Um, yeah, that was very that yeah. was very harmful. I mean, at the beginning of this, I guess we sort of came out okay in so far that the first set of numbers that I heard in February were expect one point five to two million people to die um, if nothing happens. Then yeah. we. We got to 600,000, which is extraordinary um, and awful. Yeah. So yeah. I guess we didn't make it to 1.5 million, yeah. which is great, but 600,000 is pretty terrible. And so uh, so there's just that, right? The existential threat of, of all of that that is still happening. Yeah. Um, but it's emotionally taxing too, right? To, to answer repeatedly and uh and try to provide the best possible explanation to some to people um when you're fighting big forces of misinformation and disinformation and i think something that's maybe not accounted for i didn't work nearly as hard at this as a lot of my other colleagues in infectious disease on this campus um we don't actually have very many infectious disease people on this campus i'm maybe the only infectious disease person that didn't get pulled into uh this larger epidemiological testing effort that happened here. Um, and uh, which is, I mean, I'm grateful <laughs> that, that I was that I was bypassed because that completely absorbed all of my colleagues that got pulled into that. They did they did the right thing and it was it was great for the university and the community and it was great for the state. 
Um, Because a lot of them were consulting also for the the state of Illinois, but it was um, it's been very hard on them personally and also just like professionally, it's it's difficult, too. So um, not to speak for them, but I know that I would have a great deal of time with that, like struggling with that. And I guess like what people don't necessarily appreciate. And I think that this has also been a problem maybe in universities generally. you know, the, the way that the American university is structured is that it's based on like service to undergraduates. And that's because uh, at least at le- in state institutions, at least 50 percent of the money that runs the institution is based on tuition. So there's this sort of uh, and maybe 10 to 12. So in, in Illinois, 12 percent comes from the state and 50 mm-hmm. percent comes from tuition. And the other is made up largely by like money off of grants or patents. So, uh, and that's what makes the university function. And so there's this sort of service attitude and to the undergraduate experience. Um, and I've had a wonderful group of undergraduates that have worked with me and have been here with me this whole time. Um, and I have great graduate students that have been doing the same, but there is, I think it took a little while for the whole of the university, including the students to understand like the kind of pressure that infection faculty and even people engaged in infectious disease were under because like I was taking calls on student updates in between calls with my lawyer to write my will because yeah, what yeah. if both my kids what if my kids are left like without parents you know right. like, um that that that's <laughs> I don't even know where to start with that that that's how big and awful things were and it's kind of hard to just sort of snap back and recover from that kind of stuff right when you're being consumed all the time yeah yeah absolutely i i mean it's it's in and then and then people that uh, people that went out and treated it like spring break or whatever and and don't didn't get COVID. it's like well the reason why there wasn't more COVID deaths and everything else was because so many of us wore the masks and stayed in and have gotten vaccinated and all they do like it clear. I mean, there's, there's more going on to the low numbers than just vaccines alone. I imagine there's other factors with summer and everything else, but it's pretty clear that vaccines are lowering the rates of COVID. And it's like, so what would you, so to someone that's like, vaccine hesitant like what are you hesitant about you getting the vaccine would you prefer nobody get the vaccine because it would be a dramatically different world and i i just i mean i just don't uh, i think i I think hesitancy comes from from a couple of different so for anti-vaccine right where the the notion is like vaccines cause these great harms and you just don't know i've got the inside track right yeah that Right. Like, could really like? There's no people. people whatever. Think, that's people think people watch too many damn movies and think science <laughs> is like. But I think also the other uh, on the on the hesitancy thing. I mean, we're looking. I think there just a major, major, major public health failing. Yeah. And that's you know that's on the governments and the American Medical Association and and state boards mm-hmm. and all of these like organizations that have turned a blind eye to the kinds of harms that have been committed in the name of medicine. And I know like we've talked about this before that like there's a lot of people that point to the Tuskegee um, yeah. syphilis study, 
Okay, that's a really easy thing to point at, right? You go, oh, this horrible thing in the past that doesn't happen anymore, but people remember it. I mean, okay, that's true. But it's way, way more than that. It's about like not being heard. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, as a, as a woman, um, as a white woman, I'm actually pretty privileged, but I, you know, I've been ignored by doctors before. I have a mm-hmm. genuine distrust of like, male doctors when it comes to talking to them around issues of say you know my uterus for example uh but i also have a a bit of a vague distrust for them for having been misdiagnosed multiple times i went into uh, a clinic once um like barely walking i was like i'm pretty sure i have pneumonia gave my like symptoms and everything else and the guy tested me for influenza and i was like well i I don't think I have influenza. I think I have pneumonia. I need a chest x-ray, I think. And he came back and said, your flu test is clear. Go home. I would like to be, you know, looked at for pneumonia. I have a fever of 105. Like, why are we testing me for influenza? And he was like, well, I have another patient that needs to come in. So you need to go home. So and then I ended up in the ER that night. And that's, you know, that's a small experience, but that's an experience of being ignored. And so I think that there's like that plays into it, too. Mm-hmm. And so um, so hesitancy, I think it's going to be more that pulling that apart is going to be more about gaining trust. Whereas like with anti-vaxxing, I don't think there's any way of gaining trust. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that just is what it is. And 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 so I, I guess it's I, <laughs> yeah. With, with the anti-vaxxing, people are like, well, what you need to do is reach across the table, and like, no, nah, that's a that's a absolute waste of my time. <laughs> what I need to do is blow off a little steam here and there for my own sanity. But um, it, there's, it. Let me run this. This might be. So, I have thought about just the difference between what scientists do and what doctors do, which is like mm. we just made the kind of analogy of pilots and engine you don't have the mechanic fly the plane you don't have the pilot the engine the other thing is i think it, one one thing that i think would be nice to get through to anyway conspiracy people vaccine hesitance it, it just everybody is that i think people think if they don't know something like it's an attack on their intelligence or something and it's and that's and that's what a lot of the defensiveness is about and it's like well no it's it's not a smart or a dumb, it's an experience thing. It's a knowledge and education thing. It's, right. I, I, I would rather take the dumbest jet engine builder over the smartest person that's never built a jet engine to build a jet engine, plain and simple. It's like, I, right. it, it doesn't matter how, how um, smart I, I might be. I know nothing about cars. It doesn't matter how dumb some mechanic might be. They they might they might be a genius when it comes to car. It's it's like and so there's there's something like that going on too where people just assume, "Oh, I'm smart and I can just get up to speed on this really quick." And it's also not they're not like taking an infectious disease course or something online to get a 101 understanding just to the only really the the best thing about taking something like that or i remember taking like 
a genetics course 10 years ago and being like, wow, props to geneticists because that's the first course. I can't imagine what it's like to be doing that for 20 years of your life and the, and the complexity of it. And, and so, so if you're just doing little bits of newspaper research and you can hardly, like I had a, I had one of my aunts was um, like who who was like going to be against the vaccine from the get go, no matter what. But she just likes rumors and gossip and stuff. One time she was over um, and she was uh, she was like, I heard someone died in this vaccine trial. And Hmm. this is months ago. And I was like, yeah, where'd you hear that? Like where I didn't see that that you would think like that probably would have been headline like oh it was and and she described the detail uh, and i was like well can you pull it up for me can you show me where that source is and she described enough of the details that i googled uh, like what she was saying which was like a young person in um uh the czech republic or something like i forget where i forget where it was and but i looked up and i found the headline and it did say, you know, to her credit, someone died in the vaccine trial. If you if you read the subtitle under that, it's it was someone in the control group, someone who had gotten the placebo, died of COVID. Control group oh, is something that you need. And people yeah. don't get don't know that and just see that headline right that that the real outrage there should be about trying to run a vaccine trial um how long do you leave someone who's entered a a double-blinded trial without the vaccine in the first place right like yeah 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 so that someone behaves as if they might have had it yeah, uh, yeah. might have had the actual vaccination and how well do they understand that? And like, so the real controversy there for me is maybe around ideas of informed consent yeah, yeah. Um, or what that person understood as opposed to, yeah, the vaccine. But that's what people like can latch on to easy, easily. Right. Like right, right. and vaccines have been a big bad guy since the late 1980s. They're yeah. um, there's a you know, they're not an easy target. They're just very widespread target. I think so. I was saying earlier how um, emotionally exhausting it can be to be to constantly get back up on your your feet and try to like, on top of all the other things you have to do, to talk to people one on one about their fears around um, vaccines. Mm-hmm. My attitude about this is that uh, I. That's, I love immunology so much like i'm such a huge fan and totally and completely repeatedly fascinated by like the immune system um and all of the ways in which it manifests and the weird things that it does and how much energy it takes and like and how for all that we know we actually know pretty little about it from a certainly from a comparative standpoint and definitely just generally even just in one person um that a big part of i want to be able to like I want to be able to transmit that enthusiasm to other people. So yeah. if someone comes to me, no matter what they're saying, if they're not combative, yeah, yeah. then I've got time for them, you know? Yeah. And part of when I think about things that I want to do in the future, I like, I really want to be able to like 
take down communication barriers around this, these sorts of topics for, for people to access and access early. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm up against as one tiny scientist and, and all of my colleagues are the same. Uh, they're up against like the Russian government. Mm-hmm. Right? The, the people who are spreading disinformation now and the speed with which they're able to do it and their efficacy is just extraordinary. Yeah. Um, so the best I can do really is uh, is one on one communication, probably. And so that's, you know, so I've got time for it. If they're not combative, I've got time for it. Well, there's also fringe fringe stuff is kind of profitable. So I've had I've had around 350 episodes of this show um, and I've had four people on that are now like part like early on in the podcast, um, people in like evolutionary psychology or whatever, and a couple people and uh, and 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 people that that were um, uh, that ultimately ended up being in like this kind of intellectual dark web club of like uh, pushing back against liberal academia and why can't we talk about gender differences and this sort of thing. And, and a lot of it's um, a lot of it's kind of curating this controversy that, that is a little bit blown out of proportion and then, and then presenting that as such to get on certain uh podcasts and stuff and then but every so you know i've had like i said about uh, close to 350 guests um if you if you took the twitter following of all of my my guests um other guests other than those four there's like one one science communicator that had a, a lot of uh david pogue a great great guy who who's but he was a scientist he's a science communicator and has like a million followers or something like that uh but anyway but if you take these four um these four people that after i had them on i i watched them like i followed them on twitter and i watched what happened and they kind of created this big controversy and like trump apologizing type thing and they just reaped the rewards of follow so if you if you take all the guests i've ever had on and add up all their twitter following it's a fraction of what one of those people has for a twitter following and they they were all the same as like everybody else you know which is most academics have like a couple thousand people or whatever and like their academic friends that maybe do a little more outreach or something like that. I'm a (laughs) non-entity on social media. (laughs) We're talking about people that are getting like a quarter of a million Twitter followers and not, not for their academic work, not, not, not for being some amazing communicator, just, just owning the libs and talking about (laughs) virtue signaling and this sort of thing. And, and it's, it's, big money and there's people and there's people making a lot of money off of that now well so a that's really unfortunate b i saw a piece on michael flynn this past week um about the money that he made on back deals pushing QAnon. yeah conspiracies like so there seems to be like a whole market around this that i'm really really deeply unaware of i was really stunned yeah. I mean, I, I can see how in, in your case, right, someone comes on, 
they get more followers. They start pumping conspiracy theories, and that helps them sell books or helps them sell profits or like. Well, when they came on my show, they weren't do they weren't doing that. Like they were just right. a regular. And then later on, like something went wrong. Like one. Oh yeah, no. The way uh, I said that uh, made oh, it sound yeah. like they were doing it on your show. That's not how I meant it. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I. I and and a lot of it's yeah. like disgruntled. Like one person in particular. They made a tweet that was, um, that was about how they were at some science conference and they said something to the effect of, um, if there, there's too many obese people, why, why would I hire someone for my lab if they don't have the self-control to, uh, take care of themselves or something oh. like that. It might have even been about. They might even even said obese women. It was so incredible. And then and then instead of just like apologizing, they tried to say like, "Oh, that was just a study that I was running or whatever." And then and then um, and then they just instead of being like, "Boy, I sure hate. Th- I wasn't thinking clearly, and I would hate to." have turned away talent because of such a reckless thing to tweet. And I'm new to this social media thing. And I had a little too much to drink anything like that. They just doubled down and then made it about like liberal academia is like, no, that's not not what's happening. That's if you went into an office and you were like, Hey, there's way too many fatties around here. You'd probably get pulled into HR. Like in any company in in the U.S. And so then what these guys do is they fabricate this like, well, here's what they don't want you to know. Right. And now they're jumping on this like vaccine, uh, 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 like sl- messing around with like fringe ideas and vaccine hesitancy and all this and presenting it as like, we're the intellectual dark. We're, we wear leather lab coats and that kind of the collars <laughs> pulled up and drive perpetual I, uh, motion Harleys. To work. <laughs> <laughs> perpetual motion Harleys. That's badass. Uh, that's absolutely horrific. Yeah. What an awful, awful thing to. Yeah. And completely intolerant thing to say. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and, and, and also, and, just like, and, if, and, if, then, if, and now they're profiting from, and now they're on the course where they profit from just like saying outrageous things and saying, like, this is a libertarian freedom of speech thing. And they're, the thing is, is they're pretty smart people generally, like, know a lot of big words, you know, and can, and can sound like they know what they're talking about and what, and what does some listener? And then another thing that happens too is they'll go, they'll present it like, oh, here's what academia doesn't want you to. And then they go on like a Rogan podcast or something. And then m- almost everything that they're saying is like reasonable. And uh, for the most part. And so people are like, well, why are they being censored? Everything that they're saying is re- right. It's like they're making up this controversial thing and i use rogan because he's straight up uh eddie eddie bravo and alex jones are his two most popular guests he's a conspiracy peddler quite openly right. and it's the top popular it's the most popular podcast 
in the world. He makes a lot of money off of supplements. That's if you want to follow the money. Go back to the vitamin industry. Go (laughs) to the vitamin industry. Watch the guy that made a hundred million dollars during a global pandemic. That's how you can follow uh, the money. Damn. I I don't. Yeah. So. So. Um. In my own academic experience, there's always people that um, self-promote pretty heavily and they get, yeah. they get a little bit of backlash for it. I've not... <sighs> what is... <laughs> the cynicism required to like do what you just described and then just the, the total myopia. So let's say that for real, they're discriminating on that level in a lab. Mm-hmm. The myopia required to do that is nonsense. Science has very little to do with control. Right. I mean, if, I mean, at least in my experience, it has an awful lot to do with like you do the best you can, but like those cells are going to do what they want to do, and right. you're not necessarily going to get what you want to get out of the the experiment. It has nothing to do with how someone looks or feels or any. Right, right. Number of other things, right? There's, uh, it's nonsense. Uh, so yeah, to close the door on on talent for, yeah, yeah, I mean that. So let's just say that they're just saying that to self promote. They're necessarily closing the door for on talent for not just themselves but other people. Yeah, yeah. Right, like there's other labs that are going to not, you know, there's people yeah. who are going to be discouraged from joining generally, and yeah, that's just, yeah. you know, that's nonsense. And to make money off of it is just disgusting. That's awful. Yep. Uh, and, and, and then and then and then from the public's point of view, they, they they a lot of the public kind of conflates what the government does and what scientists do. And and, oh, yeah. and so it's like this broad idea of authority generally. And so they think it's like Edward Snowden or something where the military has operates through every military in the world operates through there's a level of secrecy and classified information. And so there are going to be whistleblower kind of scenarios that, that happen. And that's very exciting for people. And, and so, so people think that when some, uh, charlatan like, uh, chiropractor or something like that, that, that there's a lot of chiropractors getting into like, uh, vaccine, uh, like, peddling various supplements and stuff and uh and and so then so then people are like oh they're they're a whistleblower their academia is hiding their secrets and this whistleblower is presenting this thing and that's how it's presented to the public that doesn't is mostly familiar with what a scientist is from seeing someone in a lab coat on a on a movie like dr evil or something like that i i think so so much to to unpack <laughs> there. Yeah. Uh, so I guess one of the things that I've f- was irritated by in the beginning yeah. of the pandemic, and it still bothers me, is um, is so it's one thing for me to switch from like severe bacterial infections mm-hmm. and jump back over to some kind of virus. I'm not a virologist. I'm not purely interested in pathogens for that matter. I actually am more interested in host side responses to things. But I study severe infections, 
by and large, the manifestations of sepsis are, are they, it's very heterogeneous. Like it's a mixed bag. Uh, not everybody has the same symptoms. Not everybody goes in the same direction, but there's lots of overlap. So to be able to talk about how people with COVID-19 are going to, you know, the, the kinds of injuries they're going to suffer and what they're going to look like 10 years out from now, um, that's not a big stretch for me. Mm-hmm. But I'm not epidemiologically modeling. I don't do spatial geographical modeling. I don't do um, I don't do like predictive modeling on on numbers um, of infections and you know, what that's you know. I, I don't even look at like like at basic what's the likelihood that this is going to infect six people versus two people, whatever. Um, that's something that my more mathematically driven friends do. Mm-hmm. And so I have at no time had a problem popping someone over to talk to someone who knows these subjects um, because, A, I think it it benefits anyone, period, to be humble about what they know and don't know. Mm-hmm. And I understand that most things in science are unknown, uh, that most things in life are unknown. And secondly, gosh, it'd be an awful lot of work to go try to gain what, like 15 years worth of experience in a couple of weeks to be able to answer a question that's like tangentially related to what I do. Even if, even if it meant that I could pull in grant money on it, I don't have any of those, the people that are going to read that grant are going to reject me. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't have any of the connections in that community to like be assessed correctly. It's not, yeah, all of that to say, um, it's unfortunate that A, there are people that jump, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Professional expertise. And Mm -hmm. there have been a lot of people that have done this, at least early in the pandemic. B, um, it's it's unfortunate that I would be confused in any way or any of my colleagues that are in academic circles with the government or with people having any sort of like um, intellectual power sufficient enough to determine government policy. Mm -hmm. I think that actually the bulk of my (laughs) things that I've, had to say to government figures have been largely ignored, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> including yeah. grant applications that never make it to the table. Like there's, there's, um, I, I don't know that it, yeah, I don't know even how to disentangle that. There's a big difference between government scientists and academic scientists for that matter. And scientists that are working in, you know, that are working in schools. Um, mm. so yeah, that's uh, unfortunate that there's that kind of like level of distress. And I do think that, um, some of the backlash I've gotten has been around the when I've given explanations and things. I try to be very careful about how I word explanations around infectious disease because people get embarrassed when they share things publicly on social media and then they're called out and told like this is incorrect. And mm-hmm. so usually I try to make a decision between whether or not it makes sense to publicly call someone out or whether it makes sense to like quietly contact them and say, just so you know, the information you're presenting here is incorrect because of the following things. Mm-hmm. And so this is going to lead people to believe blank when actually it might be blank. So you can keep that thing up if you want to. But I'm telling you that this is like what you're posting is like factually not right. right. In most cases, when I contact someone quietly, they quietly take the post down. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean that the damage has necessarily been undone, but it's definitely limited and that fewer eyes are going to see the post in the next coming minutes or something. So I guess that's an upside. Um, but I think the other thing is that because I have 
um, an advanced degree, there's always going to be a certain number of people that are just intimidated by the fact that that's the case. Mm -hmm. So, um, and will feel that I am judging their character because they don't know something when I'm really not. I mean, I think the unfortunate thing about um, the whole of the academic experience is that generally speaking, you don't pull in your first grant until you're in your early 40s. And so, and so then you've got this really limited work span for you spend about the same amount of time working as you do this earning the stripes to do the work in the first place. Um, and so like you end up working in tiny circles of things that you do know a little bit about. Mm-hmm. And it's um, you're not as all knowing as you you might <laughs> might mm-hmm. want to be. Right. Right. Yeah. What's the name of the the guy from Faust? Mepha, Mepha, Mephistopheles? Mephistopheles? It's the guy that gives Faust the... Do you know the one I'm talking about? No. It's a poem, and then there's two operas. One's Baroque, and one's Romantic, I think. And then mm. there's like a play based on the poem, too. Okay, so Faust makes a deal. He wants to be all-knowing. This creature, the name of which I've forgotten comes and says, I will give you this, but uh, it's at the cost of, and it changes depending on what version of this story is, but usually it just ends up with Faust going to hell. So he can be all-knowing, but Mm -hmm. he ends up burning for eternity. Um, Yeah, so I think a lot of people would like to be Um, Mm all-knowing. But one of the most humbling things about being a scientist is that you realize very quickly that you don't know anything at all. Yeah. I I have to so, I put myself out there to be dub every episode every single I I'd be surprised that if you listen to an episode of this show where you don't get to hear me be like oh okay I was wrong about that <laughs> <laughs> at least once if not ten times in an episode but it's part of it it comes along with it all um it 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 is it's unfortunate to me that. That uh, I mean, it's clickbait's tricky too. I mean, I mean, before COVID, I never got. No one was ever like, "This hummingbird researcher doesn't know what they're talking about. They're working for <laughs> Bill Gates." You know, it's it never, never once. Um, and you know, in a, uh, inconvenient truth, uh, and and people have a hard time with it. I. I, I'm a little, I've been frustrated personally lately. And this is like, I always feel even selfish for having feelings like this because it's a global pandemic. But, you know, I'm trying to plan out my life, which consisted 95% of my income was touring before this. Every comic is touring again right now. I'm the only one that's not as far as I, as far as I know. And, um, and I'm like planning on things that I'm like excited about. And I'm planning on trying to do some stuff like starting around November. And I'm just so like, everything seems so up in the air. I mean, because the last time I talked to you, I was like, well, I'll wait another year. <laughs> and then things started opening up. And I'm like, well, I don't know. What am I supposed to do? And uh, and then I was looking at no because I'm like, well, maybe vaccines are better than that. And like the rates started dropping so much. And for a while there, people were getting their vaccines pretty readily. And now that's tapered off. And I'm just I'm 
so we're I'm I'm sure that rates are going to stay like somewhat low for the summertime, but I I mean fall I mean maybe not in the south as much, but won't won't fall. What what are you what do you think is going to happen in the fall? Right. I mean I know I know this is like an unfair question. Oh, um, I mean like I a have wild lots... wild ballpark I, right. idea, I have but lots and lots of ideas about what's going to happen. So I think that the um the kids twelve and under. And it might be like done in two stages where it's 12 and under and five to zero um, that those approvals are going to roll sometime between August and September. Mm-hmm. And the Biden administration has been really aggressive about getting the appropriate syringes and the appropriate um, numbers of vaccines. So I think that we're probably looking at a child vaccine rollout in um, in the fall, like early fall. And so that for me, is a, a fairly big watershed uh, moment. Once mm-hmm. those 50 million kids have access, then I'm going to feel a little bit better about returning to certain behaviors. Um, that said, by the time that they do, the first set of healthcare workers, only a couple of months later, will have been vaccinated for a year. So we're looking, we're still going to be playing catch up around that. We don't really, there, there are people who are being monitored as part of all of these trials to see when they need boosters and and that kind of thing. So, um, so just in terms of B-cell memory knockoff, I think that we're going to start to see drops probably next spring. So, uh, but we should have data before then on whether or not boosters are required. And I think everything's going to be emergency use authorization for a little while longer, Um, which means that employers are in a weird legal position of not being able to mandate that their staff be vaccinated to appear at work. Once it's a formal, it's not an authorization, but it's approved. Um, they can, the employers can, can mandate that. So I think that's going to be maybe another little while. Mm-hmm. So those are the two next big humps for me, mm-hmm. kids. And then, um, well, I guess three kids booster approval. One thing that should make you feel a little bit better is that the Pfizer and Moderna, the, the MRNA, um, vaccines, this is an extremely flexible technology so if we get something that's like the Delta variant in Sinovac, where like it just busts through that protection, this is something where you just pop in a different RNA sequence, slightly different, and the approval should be pretty speedy. Like the flu vaccine is approved on changing antigens all the time. And that's a fully approved vaccine. So I yeah. think that like we we are looking at a better future it's just going to be another janky year well uh, that's what a what a positive note to (laughs) to wrap up on because i do i am so excited about the mrna vaccine because of this very because i mean i shouldn't say never again but basically there's not going to be a a 10-year five-year wait for a vaccine theoretically like ever again ever again we could i mean it's very possible that most of the things that are going to emerge in the future and some of the things that we have to deal with right now could be handled just like this and we don't have to worry about attenuated live viruses escaping and maybe causing a problem like there's this very very small number of polio cases that happen every year because of attenuated vaccine that ends up in the um 
ends up in the water systems in certain places and stuff. Right. Uh, very, very rare, but it does have, it's like something like 300 cases worldwide every year or something, but it's right, very, very right. small, but that's still a thing. We never have to think about that again. That, then on top of that, like, keep in mind that I'm also thinking about this from a slightly different perspective than a lot of other people. I've got there, including myself, there are people in, in my home that are really vulnerable. And so um, that changes my risk perception pretty standardly. But in terms of like, so I get that like for what you do, you probably want to be in a closed room as opposed to in an open space. Necess- maybe that there's the dynamics of how people laugh and get along and communicate. It's, I, you know, I will say even before COVID, I was actually looking into getting a large like um, fan ish vehicle that I would that I would use the side as a backdrop and set up a stage so that I would have the option to do things in parks and stuff. And that's only because my particular style through the years has went from like a setup punch late night kind of thing to more of a conversational sitting around the campfire sort of vibe. Right. So it does I can manage um but but traditional stand up comedy it, if if you if before covid um you you were like uh, the, uh, like a comic showed up to a room of like say it was someone that was like comedy we'll have a comedy show and hire this comic and and then they and then they went okay here's what we've done we've distanced all the all the tables 10 feet apart uh it's it's open air we're going to put something over people's mouths to muzzle their laughter and you'd be like are you insane you just did all of the wrong things for the like laughter is contagious which is less contagious when you're distancing from a contagion, <laughs> you know. Well, you you want low ceilings, people packed tightly together, uncomfortably so. <laughs> like it's it's little itty bitty imbalanced cafe tables. Yeah, <laughs> like that's what, that's what you need. Well, okay, so let me just say that I think that there's a couple of things that we're gonna have to overcome generally. Just to like, first off, the future is always unknown. This just makes it more apparent, right? That yeah, the future is yeah. really unknown. Of course, so the future is always unknown. So that's my sunny point of view. The second thing is that um, is that I think that there's going to be some interesting adaptations that we can make. Um, and I get that like laughter is such a guttural thing and it involves like your whole face. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's hard, right, to communicate, uh, especially in dark lit scenarios how you feel about something if all you have are your eyes and muffled sounds underneath mm-hmm. like that that's that's tough. but um, but I think there's some really interesting opportunities for us to think of other new ways to like communicate. And there is going to come a point where there aren't going to be masks. Yeah. So this is a maybe a time for a bit for it's so hard, but I think that maybe this is like some time for innovation. So one of the things yeah. that's happening for me personally right now is that my school board is telling me that if my kid doesn't go back to school in person, that's okay, except that they can only not opt in if they have been vaccinated, but they have some other condition that keeps them out. So my child can't be vaccinated by law. Mm -hmm. So this is forcing her to go to school. My kid does have conditions that would make it difficult for her to go to school safely. And so 
I'm looking at how am I going to teach from home a full load now on my own while still doing all the other things that I have to do. And it's been already, however much time it's been, like 18 months of, mm-hmm. of having to cope with other people teaching my kid, but in my home. Um, so I'm trying to think about this from a sunnier perspective, which is like, maybe I just have to innovate how this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. In the state of Illinois, I just have to pull her out until the school she's pulled out. And then I'm going to have to come up with something, but maybe, maybe that's new and maybe it'll be a good thing overall. So that's not, that's very vague and not helpful specifically to comedy, but like, but maybe yeah. the van thing is the way to go. I love that idea. I would totally see an act like that. Yeah. You know? I mean, I mean, and some people ended up doing it, um, uh, uh during, during COVID and everything. Yeah. I mean, whatever it's, it's, uh, there's bigger things than my career i'm i'm mostly i it's nice to know because frankly i'm just like yeah i think i'm kind of looking for a career change for the moment and just focusing more on podcasting and um, science communication and doing doing other things um that are unrelated to stand-up comedy and i'm kind of uh uh, grossed out by everything that i saw with stand-up comedy um, oh through through COVID as well, where well, we're uh, comedians are by and large like anti-conformist kind of people, and so like don't like being told what to do. So there's been a lot of abundant science denial and motivated reasoning and stuff in within a community that I used to respect. So it's also like, well, okay, see you guys, I'm doing my own thing, but um, but that's neither here nor there. But I, can, but can it I- is, yeah. Just one. Sure. Sorry, I know you want to tie up, but uh, it makes you feel any better. I think about leaving all the time. <laughs> all the time. I think about yeah. now, literally every day I wake up and think about leaving and doing anything else. Yeah, yeah. I, and I think a lot of other people are in the same, the same boat. I yeah. mean, this has been hard. It's been really hard. Yeah, yeah. And um, and so I'm kind of I feel a little bit better hearing news that a lot of like employees are saying, "Screw you guys! I'm going out to find happier work circumstances." Mm-hmm. Because I kind of feel like, um, you know, we've demonstrated that there are ways to accommodate the needs that the rest of us have in our life in the workplace if they need to be at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we've shown that this is like possible. So mm-hmm. in, for a lot of different job types and that, you know, the conditions that make my job hard um, really have gotten worse and haven't been accommodated. And so uh, and there's mm-hmm. no one to blame for that specifically, I guess, but there's just, it's just harder. And so, yeah, there's a certain freedom in thinking of like, I'm going to do this differently. I get to choose, right? Like there's a nice freedom into saying like, I get to choose how this is going to go from here on out. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, on a personal, I, I mean, I, I loved tour. I, I, I was, uh, I was in three cities a week before. Um, wow. I toured more than any comic maybe on earth. Um, and, and I, and I did love it. I'd set that up by design. Um, and I, was uh and and now i just like yeah i think i like i'm i'm enjoying myself as much if not more right now having this conversation than i uh, like crafting the little honing the changing the joke ever so slightly so it gets <laughs> like eh i kind of whatever it, it's i'm 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 fine i'm fine exploring other aspects of of uh what i do and 
That's just a whole other thing of like, I'm sure. hey, I got to figure out social media and search engine optimization and all this awful stuff that I have no interest in. But um, <laughs> but it is what it is. But uh, la- lastly, off of uh, off me back to more relevant things. Um, I did want to what what does full FDA approval look like? Why is it taking this long because as we've we've talked about on this show before maybe not you and i but um but the when when people are like uh, a main thing people you hear people say with vaccine hesitancy is like i'm not going to be some guinea pig for some rushed thing and and one of the things that a lot of people don't know that usually they're interested in when they when they hear it is that it wasn't there weren't corners cut there was there was a right. huge sample size in those control and experimental groups. It was simply that there was lots more COVID going on than there was like a spread of Ebola or something like that. So you didn't have you didn't have the same numbers in a control group um, right. it, with with, uh, with other viruses in the past. So it took longer to see the effectiveness, and that's what ha- it was. It wasn't like oh, I guess this vaccine, ah, good enough. Just get it out there. Like that's not what happened. It was just measuring the effectiveness that happened faster. Right. Yeah. So, um, okay. So to be clear, the difference between an emergency use authorization and an approval is just, it's really largely a a paperwork phenomenon. So, um, so the average drug, once it enters, once it's sponsored and enters the system, the FDA system as like to be assessed for an approval, that approval will take a little over 365 days on average. So somewhere the, the delays now are probably longer, but the average, even 20 years ago, if you pay a sp- a very expensive user fee, you can go like 20 days faster or something. But generally speaking, it's like somewhere around 385 days. It's it's would be typical for for most drugs. Um, and so, uh, although I suppose if you're going to design a new toothbrush, it probably goes. So for medical devices like toothbrushes, it goes a little bit faster potentially. But there's just a huge queue, and that's one of the reasons why it takes a while. And the way the drugs are approved are in these like small working groups. Mm-hmm. So like. Literally, back when boxes of data came in, there was a group of people that just looked at efficacy and and safety, and then there was a group of people who were then called at the end of the process to go check out the plant and come in and license all the equipment and do like a safety check over the course of a week. Um, and it's a combination of these three pieces of information that lead to a drug being approved. Once it's approved, it's still under post-market surveillance. So technically you're trialing all the time because you're waiting for data to come in on the larger population about like, you know, side effects and things like that. But um, coming back, an emergency use authorization, it can be issued when you have sufficient information on um, efficacy, safety, and uh, quality where you are, where the issue is an emergency, like you can this is needed right now. Like mm-hmm. this is a very important thing. So um, it may be that they don't even have to submit necessarily more trial data for the original approval. It's just that the the full approval process is it's um, limited by the number of humans that you have to dedicate to it. And there are drug things that are coming in all the time, drug applications mm-hmm. that are constant. And the system's not very well harmonized. So like internationally, 
So there's been lots of talk about harmonizing approvals between here and Europe and stuff, um, or here in Canada for that matter, but it, it's, it doesn't generally work like that. Um, what usually happens is that all of these jurisdictions get the same information and then they go through their own approval processes separately. So that's that's the big difference is simply that they they go on um, trial data uh, and usually minimal. But in this case, it's a lot, not minimal trial, but like in this case, they got data from Pfizer on something like 50,000 people. There's nearly 50,000 people that were in that trial. That's an extraordinary number. Mm-hmm. of people to demonstrate that like this is a drug that's effective that's a lot of people mm-hmm. um and the controls i think they got like 126 people were exposed to covid naturally which is also pretty extraordinary for the amount of time that it took to collect that data which was about six weeks uh and so now they got to look at things like long-term effects to assess uh to get safety and so around this time um they're probably putting in for full approval pretty soon if they haven't already done it. They could have probably, with the data that they had, they could have tried at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect that they probably waited for slightly longer term information. Mm. But yeah, because mm. it's expensive to get a rejection, if that makes any sense. And, and drug companies sink an awful lot of money into R&D waiting for the one drug that's going to get them a big return. So there's a little bit of hesitancy about throwing stuff in early because there's no benefit to doing that. Mm. So I, that was a long explanation. No, that's, um, that's perfect. No, that's, that's a the common question that people have. Um, oh, man, we were, we were going to talk all about the I, problems with getting various Plastics. equipment <laughs> and everything else. Do yeah, you want to give I mean, a quick thing? Yeah, do I can you, give you, it really... I, I, well, I don't want to keep you longer than... No, no, I, I can yeah. do this super, super fast. So apart from burnout, which we've talked about several times, yeah, and like yeah. loss of staff and things like that, there's this larger thing that's affecting anybody who's not running a COVID lab. So I do research in COVID now, but I'm not a COVID lab. So I don't mm-hmm. do diagnostics. I'm not making a vaccine. I'm not a critical part of like the anti-COVID machinery. Mm-hmm. So it's difficult for me to get priority for shipping things for which there are shortages under the Defense Protection Act. So going all the way back to the beginning, there has been prior to February 2020, there were shortages in source materials for plastics anyway, like anticipated shortages because no one had stockpiled PPE or any of these things that we use that are made with plastics that are critical for like, you know, infectious Mm. disease protection. So that's the very first thing. So there's a shortage ahead of time. And in February 2020, all of the people that were making um, certain types of plastics were already at max capacity, like production capacity. And the plastics that we're talking about are things like polyethylene. So that's like the kind of plastic that say like Coke bottles are made out of. Mm -hmm. They're really important for holding a lot of things that are used in labs. Uh, Polypropylene, which is slightly milkier plastic that um, I'm struggling to think of what is used in a home, but like all of my little microcentrifuge tubes, all the little pipette tips, all those conical tubes that everyone's been spitting into for tests and stuff, that's all polypropylene. Mm. Um, and then there's also monoethylene, which I don't really use so much. So there's not, I'm very unclear in its, its uses. And a little bit, I'm experiencing also shortages in polystyrene. So inventory overall during the shutdown started to drop because mm. there was high demand 
but there were shutdowns for protection at the beginning. So these were companies, uh, the companies that make the source materials for these plastics were not producing them. And then there was a big storm in, in uh, a lot of this is sort of, um, this also has to do with just weird things around supply chains. So like about a hundred of the most important chemicals used to make plastics of this nature are produced in Texas. Like worldwide, they're produced in Texas. And Texas got hit by a huge storm <laughs> in August of last year. And then again in February of this year. And both of those things led to like just big stop gaps and an already struggle, like big, sorry, gaps in an already super struggling system. Mm -hmm. And then as part of all these shutdowns worldwide, all of these companies started to like renege on their supply chain duties. So they um, like, they like pulled the lever on acts of God stuff in their insurance. So they were given permission to just produce as they could. And that has led to like shortages in packaging for meat. Like just like anything that you can think of where you use a plastic, there's a, a shortage. Mm. And then as things have like, um, so not only is there like a, a surge in demand because of COVID, but people have also like, you know, for PPE, but people have jumped on the research train. And then on top of that, testing increases the demand for these plastics too, like at an epic, epic scale. And so all of these in combination have led to halts in production, messed up stuff in the supply chain. And then uh, lastly, these were issues that were not investigated by the last administration. So when the Biden administration came in and said, hey, what's up with supply chains around like the vaccine? They immediately got a bunch of responses um, from from people involved in like vaccine development that like we can't get microcentrifuge tubes, we can't get these things that we need, and so they enacted the Defense Production Act, which was talked about a lot before. But the Defense Production Act in the U.S. allows the government to say, "Hey, private company, you have to do this in the interests of like national defense." So all of the distributors and of lab plastics have been directed to prioritize COVID diagnostics, COVID, hardcore COVID research labs. And that's what they've done. So for anybody not studying COVID, if you're studying cancer, you can't get these materials. Mm. Um, I have friends that have been waiting for microcentrifuge tubes for months. Uh, the, uh, another scientist that we've both been in communication with, mm -hmm. E.A. Quinn, has been waiting for cryovials. These are like special tubes for freezing things down in liquid nitrogen for four or five months. I've got somebody coming in. You got to turn around. Um, and, then, and then the biggest thing is just pipette tips or like you just can't get them. Yeah. So um, in my case, I've had experiments held up for six weeks waiting on a critical reagent. Like there's just and it's stop and start and stop and start. And the general response that most people I know have had is just a stockpile. Mm. which is causing, which is contributing to the problem. So my lab has decided to come up with systems to reuse all of this stuff. We were already trying to figure out ways to be more sustainable. We use pounds of plastic per experiment. Mm -hmm. um, so we're trying to work a system where we can rewash and use all of these things and decontaminate them sufficiently so that we can use them again and again. Mm. So that's, and it's really, really fun. Um, it's terrible for lots of reasons, but it's really fun too. We've like, been out to Harbor Freight looking at like auto parts washers and trying to figure out like mm. how can we rig this stuff in the hardware store to like sensitively wash pipettes and get like all kinds of chemicals off of them. And yeah, so it's it's a fun exercise, but it's uh, very stressful. Well, that might lead to um, advances and sustainability and 
yeah, like let's hope eventually. Eventually, I mean, well. we're definitely facing dual crises, right? It's yeah. you know, this is happening. Climate change is happening too. If we can stop mm-hmm. petrochemical use, it'd be awfully nice not to choke out the oceans. I don't think that studying plague is um, worth choking sea tortoises, so I'm yeah. I'm all in. Yeah. So yeah. it'll be fun, but it's like we've we've been finding things like um, you know, when you go to like bars and they take the pint glass and they wash it on those like sprayers. That's mm-hmm. a great way to wash out conical tubes. Like there's like, so we're like, we're just pulling mm. stuff from like all kinds of other industries mm. where they've sort of re- resolved some of these problems. And we're like, okay, well, let's give it a shot. Let's try it. So at least we're going to try. Well, so. thank you so much for joining me. I'm going to let you get back to your, your uh, kids. Do I there. screaming kids? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. That's, that's the, uh, that's the cue to uh, let you go. <laughs> This is once again, you've been an absolutely terrific guest. Thanks for taking the time and answering all my questions so far. Oh, no, this is always so yeah. much fun. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we'll do it again. We'll get another update in another uh, few months or something. <laughs> sure thing. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much. And thank you, listeners, for being such a wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you next week.